Amen. You may be seated. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 20. We'll begin reading with verse 19, reading to the end of the chapter. Luke 20, beginning in verse 19. Hear now the word of God. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. And show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. Likewise, all seven left no children and died. After the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. 
who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feast, but devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Father, again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that it communicates to us. And even this night, may we draw from the wisdom of God himself and the wisdom of Christ, both in his words and in his dealings with deceitful men. Help us, Lord, to learn to deal with our enemy in the strength of the Lord, that we might overcome him and be true to our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you are probably well familiar with the scriptures and the way that they often speak of the struggle between the children of God and the children of the devil. Sometimes it speaks in terms and phrases that are distinctively military. And so we have phrases like in Ephesians 6 that talks about the shield of faith or the sword of the spirit or the helmet of salvation. We get a very vivid image as we hear that kind of language. Other times, the scriptures use words that involve very intense and very vigorous conflict. It speaks of wrestling, not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual principalities and powers. It speaks of running the race. It speaks of boxing. These are very lively, very energetic, very vivid descriptions of our conflict. Now, in most cases, when you're in that conflict, when you face these struggles, not with flesh and blood, but with principles and, and principalities, you don't have any question who the enemy is. You don't need to wonder, in this case, who is for you and who is against you. But can you imagine walking out onto a battlefield? Now, for those of you who have been in the military, this will be uh, very easy to understand. The rest of us can get the picture. Imagine walking out onto a battlefield, perhaps in enemy territory. And there is a group of people, a group of men standing there, and they're all dressed in army uniforms with U.S. Army, and they greet you with smiles and and almost cheers, so glad to have you with us here. And they compliment you, and they tell you what a wonderful job you're doing and how you're progressing in the conflict. And yet, you soon discover that that was all pretending. That actually it is your enemy disguised and it is there to to enter into battle with you 
and they turn their weapons upon you when your guard is down. Now that is the situation that we see taking place here. Our text describes how the Lord Jesus had been surrounded by his enemies. They had been questioning him. They had been challenging his authority. Who gave you this authority? Why are you saying these things? You're going contrary to all that we teach the people. And yet the very next day, when these enemies come to Jesus, their whole attitude has changed. Suddenly, his enemies are talking like his friends. They're pretending to be behind him. Notice how they they say, Teacher, we know that what you say is true. Makes you wonder, well, if they knew that it was true, why didn't they do what he said? But they say, "We, we know that you teach. We know that you teach rightly. We know that, that you are from God and that what you are saying is, is true and right and is not showing favoritism to anyone, but you are teaching the way of God in truth. And so they begin to pretend as if they're behind him and on his side. And they even say, you know, we need your help. Because we've got a problem. We're, we're really wrestling with this theological question. Is it right for us to pay tax to Caesar? Could you help us out? Could you give us understanding about this? Well, of course, as Jesus deals with these enemies pretending to be friends... He deals with them in a way of great wisdom and a great instruction for us because we're going to face this same situation at times. If you've been a Christian for very long, you know that sometimes wolves dress like sheep and they pretend to be for you when you know They are actually against you. We need to know how our enemy operates. We need to be aware of his tactics. And this passage reveals to us three favorite tactics that Satan uses to distract and destroy the people of God. And we need to see how to deal with it like Jesus dealt with it. So we're going to look at three things, three devices. The first one is this, device number one, pretending to be your friend. Now remember that in the previous passage that Jesus had silenced the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. And they were angry with him. And just a day later when they come, They are pretending now to be righteous. They are pretending to be sincere. They are pretending to be interested in the things of God and the truth of God's word. And particularly in this question, is it right 
for us to pay taxes to Caesar. Now we know from verse 20 in our, our passage here that what they really wanted to do was to trick Jesus in some way, to get him to say something that would enable them to turn him into the authorities and say this man is in rebellion or this man is subversive, this man is trying to, to under uh, guard the, the work of Caesar. And so Jesus responds to them. If he says yes, then the people will turn away. If he says no, then he's going to be in trouble with the Roman authorities. And Jesus answers with exceptional wisdom. My friends, even when you hear that, you ought to be thinking James 1.5. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Every single day, we need to be praying that God would give us wisdom. That he would bless us with understanding. Because we're going to face situations. People are going to ask you questions. People are going to challenge you with different positions. And how you respond to them needs to be with wisdom. Ask God for that wisdom. In this case, Jesus says, show me a denarius. Most of us, again, are probably familiar with the term. Denarius was a day's wages. It was a Roman coin, and it was equivalent to a day's wage. There's two things that Jesus asks about this coin. Whose image does it bear, and whose inscription does it bear? So, again, when I asked the question Wednesday night, several people said, the image is clearly Caesar. But how many of you know what the inscription was? The image was that of Tiberius Caesar. But the inscription was Pontiff Maxim, the highest priest Son of the divine Augustus. In other words, this Caesar thought he was the son of God. And so not only was he worthy of the tax that belonged to him and was under his authority, but he was worthy of the worship of a divine being. And when Jesus answers and says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, pay the tax. It's part of living under an organized government. But don't render to him the worship because that belongs to God. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's but render unto God what is God. Well, of course, these people marveled at his answer because the trap that they thought they had laid had suddenly been foiled. And I think we learn from our Savior 
how to deal with our enemies. And here's here's the first thing that we see. When people you know that have been against you, have hated you, who have sought at times to destroy you with lies or with, with gossip, when they start trying to be nice to you, you better watch out because they're pretending. And our Savior sees that. He understands that. And so when those who, who have in the past hated you and, and sought to undermine you and then they start being nice and paying compliments to you, watch out. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, when he tells us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. My friend, Satan may pretend to be your friend, He may pretend to to have good in store for you if you will listen to him. But don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Our enemy may dress like an angel of light, but he is a roaring lion seeking to destroy you, seeking to tear you in pieces. So Satan will come and he will pretend that he's there to help you to do good for you. He will present sinful pleasures in in the light, in a a good light, as if it were a good thing. He will say, "This, this is good. This will make you happy. And God wants you to be happy. You know, there's a very poignant example of this back in Proverbs chapter 5. And many of you will, will remember that chapter and how Solomon is warning his children, his son in particular, about the immoral woman. And do you remember what he says? In verse 3, he says, the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. She is going to talk so sweet so nice, so temptingly. It's going to sound so good. How could that possibly be wrong? But listen to what he goes on to say. Therefore, hear me now, verse 7, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Stay away. It might sound good, And young people, listen. Here is is a very pointed application for men in particular. When someone who is not your wife starts complimenting you and and making comments to you and it sounds so good and, oh, she's so understanding and she listens to me. Get away. Don't go near the door. Of her house, because that is Satan working to tempt, to draw you away from the paths of God. So you don't toy with that, you don't play with that, you avoid it, 
You get away from it. Don't put yourself in that situation. Well, the second device that we see here in verses 27 through 40 is they were pretending to know the scriptures. When the chief priest and the scribes and the elders had been silenced, then the Sadducees came. So in verse 27, we have the Sadducees coming on the scene. These were people who started quoting scripture, another one of Satan's favorite tactics. And they start quoting scripture. Teacher, Moses said. Now, of all people that they could pick, Moses was one that would have been highly respected. And they said, Moses said that if a man dies and he leaves a wife and he has no children, then his brother is to marry the wife and raise up children for his brother's name. And then they add to that. Suppose there are seven brothers, and they all die, and they all marry her. And then in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? My friends, this was not the first time that Satan the enemy of our souls, used the word of God deceitfully and wrongly. If you turn back to the book of Genesis and chapter 3, we have the account of the first temptation for Adam and Eve. And in verse 3, Chapter 3 and verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now do you notice what Satan does? He asks the question. He poses doubt. He seeks to inject doubt into the woman's mind. Has God really said this? That you should not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice what else he does. He adds to the words. God had not said you could not eat of every tree. Eve rightly responds in that way. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Now she's adding to Scripture, lest you die. And what does Satan say? You won't really die. Again, he's challenging the Word of God. He didn't mean that way. You're not really going to die if you partake of the tree in the midst of the garden. And then, of course, a more perhaps even more familiar one is his temptation of the Lord Jesus. When he takes Jesus up onto the pinnacle of the temple and he says, if you're the son of God, again, casting doubt about what God had said, if you are the son of God, cast yourself down because he said, and he quotes Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge over you, and they will keep you lest you dash your foot against a stone. 
Again, if you go back and look at Psalm 91, he left part of the verse out. The verse says, it will, he, they will keep you in all your ways. If you're walking in the ways of the Most High. If you're walking in obedience to the ways of God. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you go out into forbidden territory, don't expect God to keep you from danger and harm. He will keep you if you're walking according to his statutes. And he will guard and keep you. So Satan uses this tactic with Eve. He uses it with the Lord Jesus. And the same thing takes place here. Now, the text points out that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So this whole thing is entirely a farce. It's all made up. It's meant to discredit the view that there is a resurrection. Because, I mean, how could... Seven different men have the same woman, and whose wife is she going to be when they're resurrected? It's an absurd circumstance. And the doctrine of the resurrection was only one of the things. They also believed that the soul perished when the body perished. But here's the tricky part. What they did was they quoted Moses, and they quoted only part of what Moses said. So they took part of what Moses said and they focused on that. They did not mention the other. And the real problem here was not Moses. It's not what Moses said. The problem was these people didn't understand the word of God. They didn't know the scriptures and they didn't understand the scriptures. And so Jesus begins to respond in verse 34. And he says, first off, in the resurrection, they do not marry. They're not receiving in in marriage. They're like the angels. Now, we could spend a lot of time there, but we're not going to. It's just a simple way that Jesus says, you don't understand what you're talking about. There's a lot more to it than that. And then he quotes the very author that they had quoted, Moses, when he cites Exodus 3 and verse 6. So they were talking about Deuteronomy 25. And Jesus says, you're only looking at part of the picture. What about Exodus 3, 6? When God appears to Moses in the burning bush and he identifies himself as the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This was a thousand years later. And God says, I am still the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus comments, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You and I live in a day when men are twisting Scripture, misquoting, misapplying, misinterpreting Scripture like no other time in history. You are going to face this very tactic that Satan uses with people quoting one verse or perhaps two, 
to you, but mistaking it out of context. And the only way you can deal with that rightly, my friends, is to know your Bibles and know them well. You need to know the truth of God's Word. You be able to respond to people by telling them what the Word of God says. But you have to, as the King James puts it, study to show yourself approved unto God, rightly dividing the Word of truth. You need to know your Bibles. Now, there are five rules of interpretation that can help you tremendously in dealing with people that quote part of a passage or twist it and misapply it and misinterpret it. You've heard them. Many of you have heard them before. I will keep repeating them because I want you to memorize them and begin to use them. Number one, Scripture never contradicts Scripture. The Lord is one. He doesn't say one thing one day and something completely different the next day. The meaning of Scripture is always one. It does not contradict itself. Number two, if your interpretation of one verse causes it to contradict another verse, your interpretation of one or both of those verses is wrong. Because Scripture never contradicts Scripture. Thirdly, always, always compare Scripture with Scripture. Always look at what Paul says. Well, then look at what Luke says. Look at what Jesus says. Look at what Moses said. Compare Scripture with Scripture and see if the way you're thinking is coinciding with all of those passages. Number three, never, never take a verse out of context. Always, you always have to look at that verse in context. Look at the verses before it, look at the verses after it, and oftentimes those additional verses color tremendously your understanding of the one verse. And then lastly, always interpret the obscure in light of the clear, not vice versa. I can't tell you how many times people have either been very upset with us because of our view or teaching or preaching, or they've left the church over it, and they've set some obscure passage out in front and said, well, this is what this says. But you never interpret the obscure or, or the clear verse in light of the obscure. You always interpret that obscure passage in light of the clear. Now, you need to seek daily to add to your knowledge of the Bible and pray like the psalmist prays when he prays in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. Pray, my brethren, pray every day 
that God would help you grow in your knowledge of the scriptures and in understanding those scriptures. Read good books. It's one of the best ways to to broaden your understanding and increase your knowledge of God's word. Invest in a good set of commentaries. And if you need recommendations, talk to me or Pastor Matt, and we can help you with that. But you need to study the right people, and you need to study the Word of God and seek to grow in your understanding. Now, Jesus takes this opportunity after he's answered this question, and he says, let me ask you a question. David says, the Lord said unto my Lord, Jehovah said unto my Adonai. In other words, how can the Messiah be the son of David, which they agreed, and yet David calls him his Lord, his master? How can his son be his Lord. And of course, they could not answer that particular question. My friends, that question is not an attempt to stump these people and shame them with Bible trivia. Okay, he's not trying to do that. What Jesus is showing by that, that quoting that verse And asking that question is is revealing that these men don't understand the word of God. They can't understand how David could call his son his Lord. When Jesus could have explained it to them, but they would not have understood it. Well, lastly, the third device, pretending to love God. Jesus, in the hearing of the people, tells his disciples, beware of the scribes, wolves in sheep's clothing are a serious threat. People who quote the Bible but don't understand the Bible are a serious threat. My friends, do not ignore them. Know your enemy's devices. Learn to recognize them when they occur. But the most deadly device of our enemy is when he and his people pretend to love God. When they sound like people who love God. Oh, these people prayed long prayers. Surely, They must truly love God. They they look like people that love God. They walk around in their long robes and, and manifest themselves as teachers of the law. They act like people who love God. They're always in the synagogue. And there they are, constantly before the people, pretending that they love God. But something's just not right. Something doesn't fit here. 
Jesus says, beware of these people. They are pretending to love God. The church that I served in South Carolina for many years, my parents were members of the congregation, and very early on in the congregation, there was one particular woman, and she just used to, oh, she loved my preaching. It's so good. Are you sure we can't call you as our pastor? She was just oozing, dripping with honey, and describing how wonderful and how much she appreciated me. And my mother called me aside one day and she said, you watch out for that woman. She is a snake in the grass. And six years later, that woman split the church. She was not what she pretended to be. And my friends, you're going to encounter that. People are going to tell you, oh, I love God. I love God's people. I love God's word. I love God's truth. And here was a major problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. It was not their lack of training or learning. It was not even their slowness to understand. The problem was their heart was deceitful. They pretended to love God. But you know what? They didn't have the Spirit of God in them. They were pride, proudful. They were loved the things of the world. They were greedy. They went around devouring widows' houses. And what Jesus says is they were hypocrites. They did not... Love God, they did not have the Spirit of God, but exactly the opposite. You may remember those words from this morning in Psalm 51 and, and verse 17 and 18, where the psalmist says, The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, humble heart before God. That's what pleases him. These men were not that. They were proud. They loved honor and the praise of men, and they loved the things of the world. And Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. They were hypocrites, and God hates hypocrisy, and he will judge it. My friends, these are the devices Satan uses He is our enemy. He wants to destroy us. He wants to lure you away from God, away from paths of righteousness. Do not be ignorant of his devices. Study your enemy. Know his tactics. Study the scriptures and prepare yourself to deal with him. But most of all, Study Christ himself, how he responded. How did he have the kind of wisdom that he had? One more verse that I want you to look at back in Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Jesus specifically says in verse 4 that the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned 
that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Our Savior had wisdom. And he had discernment. He knew how to speak and what to say and when. How did he know that? How did he have that? Well, he was the son of God, of course. But it didn't come just automatically because he was the son of God. You know how he knew? Look at the next phrase. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. You want to be wise. You want to know the scriptures and apply the scriptures with power. You need to spend time with God morning by morning. You need to pray that he will open your ears as well as your mouths. May God bless his word to us tonight and help us not to be fooled or deceived by our enemy's devices. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the wisdom and grace with which he was able to deal with the most hostile foes and the most deceitful of men. Oh, Lord, help us to put on Christ in the same way, like him, to be morning by morning in the presence of the Lord and to have our ears open to hear as the learned, that we in turn might speak a word in season to those who need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.